It is November, and as we enter the month of November, our minds turn, of course, to Christmas, because there's nothing else going on in between now and Christmas, right? Uh, have you seen those calendars where they mark all of November and, and all of December is Christmas, and then right there in the middle of the three days of Thanksgiving that they, that they kind of shove in there? But we do. We start um, putting our minds towards kind of these annual traditions. We have dinners with family. We have football marathons. We have parades. 5K runs for some strange reason. People want to go out and, and run before they eat their turkey. But November is the month that brings us Thanksgiving Day. And one of the most recognizable symbols of Thanksgiving Day is this. The cornucopia. How many of you have a cornucopia that you put out on, on, for, for Thanksgiving? A couple of, a couple of the, the less young people in the... In, <laughs> been trying to learn to choose my words more wisely. <laughs> but the word cornucopia comes from Latin. Cornu is horn and copia is abundance. So we call it the horn of abundance. And when we picture one, we see this horn-shaped um, object, this container overflowing with fruits and vegetables. And we think of that as the time of harvest. This is the time when we give thanks because God has given us an increase uh, with, our, with our harvest. With, and really, as we thank God every day, we thank him for all of the increase, all of the provision that he gives to us. And this morning, we're going to talk about a harvest, but we're not going to talk about a harvest of food. Uh, this harvest is a harvest of righteousness. And as we continue our sermon series, What to Expect When You're Christianing, we turn to the New Testament book of James, chapter 3. And last week we read that James instructed Christians living in worldly cultures to bridle their tongues, because according to chapter 3, verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And we read further into that passage, and it says that the fire comes from hell. This, this fire of the tongue. And he warns Christians of the dangers of blessing God the Father, of worshiping Him on Sunday mornings, and then cursing people made in His image Monday through Saturday. And when we say cursing, we mean talking bad about them, or talking down to them, or condescending to them. And he reminds us that we are all made in the image of God. How can we talk wonderfully about God on Sunday and maybe during Bible study or maybe during some special events, but then go out and treat and speak against these people so horribly, these people that are created in the image of God. And he tells us that doing so can set on fire the entire course of life. And this is what James said about the tongue, and that's what we looked at last week. And he follows this statement on the tongue and tongue control in chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James has just instructed us about the foolishness of the words that we use the foolishness of not being able to bridle our tongues. And now he wants to talk to us about wisdom. And what he says is that we should let our conduct, our good conduct or our good works, show 
our wisdom and understanding. In essence, what he's saying here is actions speak louder than words. How many of us have heard that expression? Actions speak louder than words. You can tell me you love me and then treat me poorly and your actions are going to be what I see and what I feel. So our actions definitely speak louder than our words. And Jesus told a parable talking about this in Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 28 to 31. He teaches the priests and the elders of the temple in this parable. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Notice the reverence that he has for his father. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I will do exactly what you want me to do, sir. And then he went off and did his own thing. And Jesus asks the question, which of the two did the will of his father? And the chief priests and the scribes answered, the first. The one who said he wouldn't do it and then changed his mind, he repented of his attitude, he repented of his words, and he went and he did. As opposed to the son who gave some great words and he went and he didn't do. And this parable is just another example. It's another echo of Jesus' constant teaching that it is those who hear his words and do them who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough just to hear. It's not enough to just say, I believe. My belief should inform my actions. My belief should cause me to act in ways that are godly. And James is saying that being meek in wisdom and understanding brings forth these good works, which is a much louder testimony for Christ than our words alone. We can speak all we want. And we can say, well, we're witnessing for Jesus. But our witness is our lives. Our witness is our actions. There was a saying that was going around for a while, um, a few years ago, that you may be the only Bible that some people read. And if we think about that truth, we are, we are likely the only time that people will encounter Christians. They're not going to step inside of a church. They're not going to pick up their Bible and read. They're not going to turn on Christian radio. They're not going to listen to sermons on Sunday mornings. They're going to watch us, those people who call themselves Christians. And they're going to make their decisions about God and about Jesus Christ based on what they see. But James, he's talking about this wisdom that comes from the world. And these empty words. And these empty, just platitudes that we use. And he says that there is a good kind of wisdom and there is a bad kind of wisdom. And he goes on in verses 14 to 16, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What he's saying there is don't call yourself a Christian because you're a liar. If I have jealousy and selfish ambition 
and I call myself a Christian, I am not telling the truth. Because jealousy, bitter jealousy is not full of love. Selfish ambition is not full of love. And we remember the words of John when he said that if you say that you love the Father, but do not love your neighbor, you are a liar. So if we have these things, we are false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And you've got to remember, James is talking to Christians. He's talking to us. He's talking to those people that were going out into the world and saying, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ. But they had bitter jealousy. They had selfish ambition. These do not come from God. They come from Satan. James says they're demonic. So what are jealousy and selfish ambition? They're really offshoots of the probably the biggest sin that we can commit, and that's pride. This is where jealousy and selfish ambition come from. Jealousy is pride that breeds bitterness. And the word bitter here in this passage describes water that is undrinkable. Imagine that you are water. Your Christian walk, your Christian life is water. It's supposed to quench the thirst, the spiritual thirst of people. And they find you undrinkable because of your bitter jealousy. Often they find us poisonous. And certainly, if we are acting jealously while saying that we are Christians, that combination can be deadly. People who are not Christians don't want to hear our message because we're just like everybody else. And we have these things, and that's what bitter jealousy is. It's a dangerous sometimes deadly emotion. It's full of vindictiveness. It's full of revenge. How many of us have wanted to see revenge? How many of us have, have had something happen against us, something happen against a family member, and we want to get that person back? That's the bitterness that he's talking about. When we become jealous, a lot of times it's because we deserve we believe we deserve what someone else has. And we act in sinful ways. And that thing might be money or power or even just being liked by people more than we are. But jealousy also comes in the form of thinking that someone is after what we have. Someone is trying to get what we have. Think about jealous spouses. A jealous spouse sees somebody of the opposite sex paying attention to their spouse and they become jealous because they think, even if it's not true, they think that that person is trying to come after and take their spouse away from them. This is what happens with jealousy. And with jealousy, this breeds gossip and lies and deceit and malicious thoughts and in some case bodily harm when we get jealous and we read stories about the jealous husband or the jealous wife all the time. Even Christians who are jealous husbands. 
or jealous wives or jealous about something that maybe we thought we deserved that we didn't get. Jealousy breeds all of these things and James says that this brings disorder and every vile practice. We're going to lie about people. Maybe we'll tell half-truths about people because, hey, there's partial truth in there to try to tear them down. And this often leads to selfish ambition. Sometimes one leads to the other. Jealousy leads to selfish ambition. Selfish ambition leads to jealousy. And selfish ambition causes strife because the person doing these things for selfish reasons will try to achieve their goals at any cost. Have you ever tried to achieve a goal at any cost? And a lot of times, they will trample along the way all of the people that might get in their way. And for Christians, selfish ambition, we know, puts our own wants and desires ahead of God's wants, ahead of God's desires for us. And sadly, this often happens in the church setting. Think about the infighting that happens among Christians in the church setting. And a lot of times, it's because we have these selfish ambitions. Think about this idea that it's all about me. Think about families that, that, that help to found churches, right? We, have, we, we, we hear about church planting all the time. And these quote-unquote legacy families, I've been here since the beginning of this church and I'm going to have things the way that I want them. And if you try to change them, or if you try to get in my way, I'm going to trample you. I'm going to stop you. And if they don't get their way, they'll make, their, they'll make life miserable. Not just for the person that's trying to get in their way. They'll make life miserable for the leadership. They'll make life miserable for the rest of the congregation. Because they'll start trying to pit people against each other because of their selfish ambition. And sadly, there are even pastors who will run roughshod over their congregation, over deacons, over elders, over ministry leaders, when they don't automatically agree and align their thinking to what the pastor is thinking, whether he's right or not. Never mind that the pastor, never mind that the legacy family should never be looking to have things their own way in church. They should be looking at having things God's way. And this is what weakens Christianity. And we see it all over the world. We see people talking about how can people call themselves Christians when they do this? Or how can people call themselves Christians and they can't even agree on this? A few years ago, I was reading a story of this... uh, it was uh, the, supposed to be like the, the, the Church of Satan or something had opened up a branch in, in some state. And these two groups of Christians came together to protest. And witnesses said that most of what they heard from these two groups of Christians were how one group of Christians was better than the other group of Christians. And the one group of Christians believed things that were right and the other group of Christians believed things that were wrong. 
Satan certainly invited those two groups of Christians to that opening that day. And he loved it. He loves sowing discord. He loves sowing these problems. And it's not the way it ought to be. James says that in, in his letter a couple of times. This is not how it ought to be. The church exists because we're supposed to do things according to God's will. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only, look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. If I am looking only at my own interests as a Christian, I am attempting to build the kingdom of Joe, not the kingdom of God. All of these things, James says, are earthly. They're unspiritual and they're demonic. Satan has one goal, to get us to take our eyes off of God. That's it. And I got news for you. Satan isn't working on the people that already have their eyes off of God. We think about all these ungodly people, and oh, Satan has such a hold on them. Well, yeah, he does, but he's not wasting any time or any energy on those people. He's taking his time and his energy on us. Satan knows that if we, he can take our eyes off God, he's got us. And the biggest weapon in Satan's arsenal is pride. We get jealous when we think other people are ignoring us in favor of somebody else. I see this every day in high school. I hear the complaints all the time. Well, she used to like me and now she likes somebody else and now I can't be part of that friend group and now I got to go and eat lunch someplace else because they don't like me and I just want to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> actual words said by actual high schoolers. <laughs> they get jealous because of their perception, not even if it's something that's real that's happening. Just that they perceive, oh, this person talked to this person yesterday at lunch, so they must not want to be friends with me anymore. No basis for it. But we see the same thing in church. Oh, well, this, this family doesn't, this family had this family over for dinner, and they've never had our family over for dinner, so they must be And Satan loves it. Because we're not looking at God. We're looking at how we've gotten hurt. We're looking at being hurt. We're looking at all of these things instead of keeping our eyes focused on Him. We seek selfish ambition because in pride we think we're deserving. We're deserving of money. We're deserving of fame. We're deserving of power. And I'm going to get it. And as Christians... We're not deserving of anything. The only reason that we are here, the only reason that we're provided for is because God has provided for us. Jesus tells parables about that too. Told a parable about three sets of workers that came to work in the field one day. And the first set of workers worked for 12 hours, and the second set of workers worked for six hours, and the, set, and the third set of workers worked for one hour, and the boss paid them the same. 
And the, and the 12-hour people were mad. Well, I, I've been here all day. Kenny just got here for the coffee. <laughs> and it takes our eyes off of God. All of these little things that we complain about, all of these little things that we think about, and we stop thinking about God. We stop thinking that God provides for us. And guess what? God provides more for some people than He does for others. And it's not our job to compare. It's our job to use whatever God has provided for us to build His kingdom. But when Satan can convince us to focus on those things instead of focusing on God, he's got us. He's going to break apart a church. He's going to break apart a family. He's going to break apart friends. And he's going to laugh every single time. What James is saying is that this is what so-called worldly wisdom tells us. Look out for number one, because nobody else is going to look out for you. And that's just a lie. Because God is looking out for us. God has our very best lives in mind for us if we will keep our eyes on Him. And my life is not going to look like your life. And your life is not going to look like her life. We are different people given different gifts and different provisions by God. And what we should be doing is saying, hey, let's all get together and get all of these provisions and all of these gifts together and go out there and tell the world who Jesus is. That's what we should be doing. James tells us to seek God's wisdom. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He lists all of these things. They sound very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. Pureness is spiritual integrity. And spiritual integrity means that we don't think or say one thing in private and then think or say another thing in public for fear of being persecuted. Well, I, 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 I don't believe that, we should, uh, that, 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 that this should happen, but I can't say anything because I might get fired. I might get suspended. I might get canceled. Pureness is spiritual integrity. We're going to say the truth. Being peaceable means that not just are we peace-loving, we are peace-promoting. We will promote peace among individuals and among nations. We will promote that peace. Being gentle means that we will maintain an attitude of kindness, courtesy, patient humility in the face of those who hate us. We won't seek revenge on them. We won't have thoughts of hatred or revenge toward them. We will love them. And we will want them to know Jesus too person who is open to reason, basically what that means is that they have made themselves teachable. And as Christians, we need to be willing to hear biblical teaching. We need to be willing to apply biblical teaching. And if ever necessary, we even need to be willing to receive biblical discipline. 
as it's needed. Being full of mercy and good fruits means that we not only show concern for the suffering of others, but we do something about it. Full of mercy and good fruits. He visits the widow and the orphan in their affliction. He answers the door when the friend knocks saying that they don't have food or they don't have clothing and they give them food or clothing. They don't just say, I'll pray for you and slam the door in their face. Being impartial means that we're fair, we're just. We're not going to put one person over another. We're not going to play favorites. And sincerity means that our actions show all of these things. We have to see people as they are created in the image of God, just like we were. And people who were created in the image of God are deserving of God's love and grace and mercy just as much as we were deserving of it. Which means totally and not at all. There is no reason any of us is sitting here. There is no reason that any of us is worshiping God except that God showed His love and His mercy and His grace to us. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what is the result of seeking and using this wisdom from above that tells us that we need to do things? That we can't just say, hey, I'm a Christian. We've got to show people what it means. Taking care of people. Doing things that Christ tells us to do. What's the result of that? A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom of the world un, is, is unspiritual. It's demonic. It does not seek peace. It seeks chaos. It seeks discord. It seeks everyone acting according to their own needs and desires without caring about anybody else. The wisdom from above, God's wisdom, seeks peace. It seeks an end to the chaos of worldly wisdom. And the church ought to be a place of peace. Christians ought to be peace seekers and peacemakers. And as we prepare to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday with our families this year, some of our families are in discord. Some of our families are in chaos. Some of us will sit down with family members who are not believers, and those non-believers will try to goad us into an argument or goad us into saying things that we know we ought not to say. Let this be the year that we sow righteousness. That we become peace seekers and peacemakers. Let us seek purity and peace in an attitude of gentleness. And let us show mercy and justice that produces the good fruits of the harvest of righteousness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for a church that we can come to and worship you. And Father, we thank you that 
You have given us wisdom from above. Father, now give us wisdom to use it. Let us look at people who are apart from you as people who you want, as people who you desire. And let us act with meek humility in the wisdom that you provide to show grace, to show mercy, to show love. Father, we ask you to strike Satan out of this church, out of our families. Let us build peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus came to earth, his entire purpose was to live a life that was sinless as an example to us. It was to show us what we are to do as Christians. And when he died, it was so that we could receive God's love and grace and mercy through his blood. And one of the things that Jesus showed us to do was the act of communion. This morning we're going to be taking communion, we're going to take the bread, we're going to take the cup. As we take those things, I want you to start thinking about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Jesus is looking to bring peace out of the chaos and discord that Satan has fought for for millennia. And it starts with us. It starts with each individual Christian accepting peace, promoting peace. As we gather this morning, if you've not been here before, uh, I'm going to invite you to have a time of prayerful reflection. Afterwards, the deacons are going to come up and they will serve the bread and the cup. We'll form line, two lines down the, the center aisle here. Come up and receive the bread and the cup. Go back to your seats and then we'll partake together. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He blessed it. And he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat this. This bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. Each time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. As we take the bread this morning, let us remember the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus then took a cup of wine, and again he blessed it. He passed it around to his disciples. He said, drink this, all of it. This cup represents the blood of the new covenant, which means salvation for all who would believe Jesus Christ and live the life that he has instructed us to live. He said, every time that we do this, do it in remembrance of him.
remember Jesus' blood poured out on the cross for our sins. As we end this morning, would you join me in saying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. People in the world as created in the likeness of God. May God help us to see people as people that he wants to see saved. And let us live our lives so that they might be pointed towards the cross of Christ. God bless you.